Welcome to Life List, a birding podcast. Hey, everybody. This is George Armistead for Life List, a birding podcast. Today, I embark on a solo interview. Alvaro and Molly are off doing other stuff. So I took the time to interview a couple here from the Philadelphia area named uh, whose names are Dr. Andrea Love and Josh Peltaheller. And they were with me on a recent Uganda tour that we did. And we were going to talk a little bit about that. But we also talk about ticks. Dr. Andrea Love is an expert on ticks. She is an immunologist, a microbiologist, the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, and she's the co-host of the Unbiased Science Podcast, highly recommended listening for podcast listeners like yourself. I am count myself as among the listeners. So it was a real pleasure to have her and to have Josh, who is a good friend and also a leader for Hillstar Nature Trips uh, that focus on photography. Uh, they were with me on this Uganda trip in which we went to try to see shoebill and gorillas and chimpanzees and a wide variety of forest birds. They will talk about their experience in Uganda towards the end of the podcast. The middle part is focused more on ticks and especially on Lyme disease. And the early part, we focus on uh, Josh and Andrea, what they do, what makes them tick I also wanted to detail for everybody a little bit about my experience in Uganda, which was pretty fantastic. We will be going back in 2026, and I hope you'll think about joining us. Even if you can't, uh, it is a fascinating place. And one of the main reasons people go there, of course, is to try to see mountain gorillas. And the success rate is pretty high as they have some groups that are habituated to humans. And so you can visit with them. Uh, the, again, the success rate is high. Sometimes the animals are tucked away in places that can be hard to access. So you do need a little bit of luck. But mostly the rangers tend to know where they are and are following them closely, and then it's just a matter of making the hike to get to where they are. And that can be an arduous hike that involves several miles, uh, maybe six or seven miles even of hiking, sometimes gaining and losing 1,500 feet in elevation as you go, or sometimes it can be a kilometer walk that might be a little hilly and bumpy in places, but is actually really not that challenging. It depends uh, on the day, the season, and a little bit of luck as to which group you're assigned to. The group we were assigned to um, was a fun group we got to see that included uh, a silverback and two females and three youngsters. And it was really thrilling. Uh, this was a species that my wife, Kristen, had been wanting to see her entire life. And I think we'll hear from her at some point about what her experience was like. But I had done this trip once before in 2021. In fact, Molly and I detailed that trip uh, on January 31st of 2022 on an episode called Travel Uganda, a deep dive on our adventure. You can hear about that trip there in which we give sort of a, a larger overview. Um, 
but I had gotten to see you, uh, the gorillas on that trip, which made my wife extremely jealous as it was her lifelong dream. She literally since kindergarten, she's been wanting to see these animals. And so we took the unusual step of actually having Kristen come on the tour as a participant, as a guest uh, like anybody else. And it was really fun to be there with her and to share the experience of seeing these mountain gorillas. Uh, we, we had a relatively short hike for our group, which was nice, we still got to traverse quite a bit of the forest, and uh, it, this is in windy and impenetrable forests, but there's a good trail for most of our trek, and then we had to go off trail following our trackers towards the mountain gorillas, <clears throat> and you could sort of hear them uh, as we approached. They're kind of, you know, grabbing vegetation and tearing, and, and, <clears throat> and so we inched up slowly, and uh, soon we were, you know, maybe just 12 uh, 14 meters away from a silverback who's feeding with one of his very cute little youngsters. And we just sat there watching them for a while. We were all kind of lined up downhill from this silverback and his youngster that were feeding there. They seemed very peaceful and were enjoying a sort of mid-morning snack. And I was at the left-hand side. We were all kind of in a line. I was on the left-hand side of the group. Our tracker was on the right-hand side of the group, and everybody else was in between. My friend Susan was immediately to my right. And soon after, I don't know, maybe five to eight minutes of watching this silverback munching away, he stood up and uh, all of a sudden started to move towards us. And that was a bit of a surprise. Uh, he, we had been told that if the gorillas were to move towards you, you are not to run. That would be a very bad move. And it's hard to not want to do that because they are impressive, intimidating, hulking animals that are, frankly, a little bit scary. As scary as they are beautiful. And that's part of what makes them so unique. So anyway, this silverback is moving downhill towards us and, you know, he's not that far away. He's quite close, actually. Uh, and before you know it, I realize, okay, I better stop filming with my phone. Uh, you know, they told us not to run away, to look sort of small, lower your head, bow your head, don't make eye contact, and try to sort of look small and, and cower, basically, a little bit. Look look non-threatening, uh, look... Um, you know, as though you are, you, you're just, you're, you know, you're not a threat. And so I did that and, and eventually I had to stop filming because he got so close and I lowered my head and all of a sudden I felt a big smack on the left side of my leg. And then I was like, oh, wow, he hit me. It did not hurt, but it certainly was noticeable. And eventually I just waited and, and I could hear him continue to move down the hill away from me. And then all of a sudden the youngster goes shooting off after him. Uh, and at that point I heard our tracker turn to me and say, George, are you okay? <laughs> and that was when I knew something really different had happened. And I said, yes, I'm okay. He did hit me though. It was a surprise. And my friend Susan, who's standing just to my right, she looked at me and she goes, you are white as a sheet. Uh, and I, I thought I was fine at first, and then a few minutes went by, and I actually started to shake a bit. And I think there was a little bit of a delayed response. 
at any rate, eventually the animals moved downhill and we actually ended up following them down into a valley where they were feeding and we sat there and watched them. Uh, and it was really, it was really a, a peaceful, thrilling experience. I later got to talk to our tracker, Juventine, uh, who is actually my tracker the last time uh, that we had gone to see gorillas in 2021 just by chance. Uh, so it was fun to reminisce with him and, and it was lucky to have him on this last venture as well. And I said, you know, so what was that about? Why did he hit me? Was it because I was the tallest and hairiest one, the closest maybe to looking like a gorilla? You know, and he said, no, you know, really it was more that I was maybe, I wasn't in his way, but I was the direction he was moving and he wanted to sort of assert that at any moment he could, uh, you know, he, he was the big bad head honcho and I was merely a gnat in his path. Uh, and so he was asserting himself ever so slightly. But I will say it was not something I expected, and it was a genuine thrill and, um, you know, not something I would strive towards ever happening, but it was certainly memorable. Anyway, that was something that a lot of people have asked me about because it I actually posted a video on my Instagram uh, and Facebook showing this encounter. But uh, I think now we'll go to Josh and Andrea. And let's listen to them talk about themselves a little bit and also about what makes them tick, what makes Josh tick in terms of his photography, and what makes uh, – what what the myths are surrounding Lyme disease and learn more about tick-borne diseases from Andrea Love. And then we'll finish up with a little bit more talk about Uganda. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Okay. Welcome, Josh. And Andrea, great to have you guys here. Uh, really excited to talk about Uganda. Really excited to talk about what each of you guys do. You guys are interesting characters leaving, leading interesting lives. Um, and uh, yeah, we're excited to talk about Uganda. Started excited to talk about ticks and photography and birds and all that good stuff. Um, but yeah, welcome to both of you. Glad to have you here today. Thanks for having us, Jewish. Yeah. Excited to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Let's start with you, Josh. Um, I think um, I'll, I mentioned a bit about your background um, uh, already, but maybe you want to just kind of give folks a little background uh, about what you do, your day job, your passion, uh, and how you got you know, into nature and birds and photography and, uh, and, and, and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, uh, boy, I, I, I mean, I, in college, I, I was in, um, a microbiology program at Penn state, um, ended up working in the lab for a little while and ultimately, um, working for a biotech company that's based up in, uh, in Boston called cell signaling technology. Little shout out to them. They, um, they're a fantastic company. They make uh, antibodies um, for for researchers who are looking at pathways of um, protein signaling in um, various disease areas. Um, I've worked for them for about eight years now. Um, and then by night, <laughs> yes, um, I'm also a photographer. I do uh, uh, a lot of photography for WXPN, um, another website called Front Row Perspective. Um, I used to work for um, John Valenia's, uh, Fokker.com as well in Philly. Um, 
actually started out working for uh, for Rockpile back in the day, Rockpile Magazine, which used to be one of those little uh, free zines at the front of the CD stores, you know, on the way out. Um, it's pretty cool. It was based in Philly and uh, some really cool people there. And that's kind of how I started out. But uh, yeah, ultimately um, progressed to 215 Magazine and then um, and then XPN. Nice. So, and for the, and for the um, non-Philly folk, maybe tell them what XPN uh, is all about. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, XPN is... Um, it's a it's a public radio station. Um, started out as a, as University of Pennsylvania's radio station. It's kind of um, progressed to uh, to an NPR station. It's um, the home of uh, World Cafe Live and the, the Tiny Desk um, music concerts and all that all that good stuff. Um, Love those shows. They uh, yeah they they had a, um, a, a split site for a while where it was kind of just xpn.org and then also a blog called The Key at XPN. Um, but last year that kind of all merged together. So now it's all, it's all just xpn.org. It's, um, a rundown of the Philly music scene, um, local interest stuff and, and some national interest stuff too. And, um, you know, great radio station, great website, great people. Um, I shoot concerts for them mainly. I used to do, um, a, uh, a series of, um, local artist profiles. Um, it's called the high key, high key music series, um, portrait series. Um, and that, that kind of focused on, uh, individual artists and bands out of the Philly area. Um, we did, I don't know, about 40 of those, I think over the years, but, um, right now I, I kind of mostly contribute concert reviews, um, to them. I don't know, probably do one or two a month for, for those guys and one or two a month, I guess, for, for other outlets right now too. So it's been a lot of fun. What were some of the recent ones, uh, recent acts you've covered? Um, very recently, boy, uh, the, the breeders I covered for, for front row perspective. Um, I, uh, let's see, uh, for, for XPN, I want to looking back, trying to remember who I, who I most recently covered for them. I can't even, it was like late last year. I was, was the last few I did because we went away. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, you know, over the years, I guess looking at your Instagram, my, I'm seeing like mud honey. Um, oh, mud honey. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That was an incredible show. <laughs> like blanket on mud honey. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, Godfather's a grunge from out of Seattle is a fantastic underground arts uh, show, which is like the place to see those guys. Oh, you know, cool. it's like, um, little, little underground club, um, on Callow Hill. It's a phenomenal. Seattle's one of our biggest venues actually for listenership. Um, that's cool. Oh, really? Well, yeah, Mud Honey. I mean, Mud Honey and Pearl Jam. I covered recently, so uh, Seattle folks should hopefully still still love Pearl Jam. Mm, nice. <laughs> I see you have I, I see you have Beck here as well. Yeah, yeah, Beck. Um, yeah, that was a that was an amazing show too. I think. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I mean they they were uh, they were with uh, Sir Chloe and, and Wise Blood. Um, it was a it was a great band, and Phoenix opened up for them too. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, Veruca Salt, Louise Post, I covered I, um, the last year. I, I covered uh, Metric, um, Tom York's new project with Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead. I was just going to uh, mention that. Project yeah. called The Smile. Mm-hmm. That was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Um, the Walkman's reunion show, uh, Doug March's um, Built to Spill. The Cure with Robert uh, Smith. I covered Bruce last year, Bruce Springsteen. That was a blast. Oh, man. Um, so yeah. Doesn't Bruce? Yeah, it's a lot Bruce of Bruce holds the record, right, for like most like sellouts in a row in Philly or something at the spectrum, I think, or, you know, whatever this, you know, the, uh, 
continuing now. It used to be the Spectrum, then then the course the core states, and now Wachovia Center or whatever, right? But I think he holds the most records for like most. Is that true? I know I know Pearl Jam did four nights in a row at the Spectrum to close that out back in like oh nine. I actually went to all of those shows, but I thought that I don't know. Did Bruce sell more shows out? At, I, he must have done. That. I think I know he did that at uh, the Meadowlands. Right? I think Philly overall. I think Bruce has like I forget what the, the stats are, but it's like consecutive sellouts going back years. You know for for concerts. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. I just remember it seems like it's in the paper every time he's here. Yeah, I mean, he he actually was gone for a while, but uh, now he's back and he's he's played a couple times in a row, I think, recently. So, yeah, pretty cool to see him live. Um, you know, it's been a lot of fun over the years doing doing that that, is. that gig. So can't complain. Yeah, that sounds like a very cool gig. Um, and I've always I've that that aspect of your work has has always fascinated me. I'm always like I'm checking out your your Hellerhound Instagram account as well. You've got your koala photography, which is all your your uh, nature stuff uh, as well. But um, but yeah, how did you get which which came first for you? Was it the 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 uh, the nature side of things, the music side of things? How did you get started in in photography and and how did you end up doing nature stuff? Yeah. Um, that, that was definitely first, um, like from age six, I started out, um, you know, I think it actually started, uh, when I was a kid seeing birds in my backyard, wanting to take pictures of them and wanting them to look just like they looked in the Audubon bird guides, you know, but they never did because I was (laughs) six. Um, and, uh, my camera, you know, this little Instamatic Kodak camera things and, um, snapping away from my bedroom window or whatever, whenever I'd see a cedar wax wing in a tree. Um, and then, you know, I started, I think I started drawing from then and trying to get things to look more like the Peterson guides and they still didn't look right. Cause I was still six. And, uh, yeah, I mean, basically, uh, went on from there, I guess when I was, um, I don't know, probably 20 something years old, I bought a, a better, a better lens and started shooting, you know, kind of more, a little bit more seriously, um, with a Canon, uh, Canon camera that my dad, uh, left me, my dad passed away when I was a kid and, uh, he left me a, a pretty cool, um, Canon SLR. And, um, so I bought a, I bought a 100 to 400 for that. And, um, you know, shooting that for a while down at John Hines and some of the other spots I was trying to get to. And, um, ultimately bought, you know, bigger lenses and went down the rabbit hole and <laughs> started shooting, uh, as, as much as possible. But yeah, that was certainly, um, kind of my intro to photography and birds was kind of concurrent like that, I guess, and, and happened at a pretty young age. Nice. Well, it was, uh, after, after seeing your work for all these years, it was really fun to see you in action in Uganda. And, uh, and we'll, we'll talk a bit more about that here. Um, as we go and uh and yeah i hope folks will keep an eye on your page on the hillstar nature site as well we've we've got a costa rica photography tour planned that uh that you're going to helm in 2025 is there anything for that trip that you're after in particular or particularly excited about oh man um i andrew and i went down there in uh in 2018 i think it was april 2018 and um you know it was just dazzling you know you, you just you're just spinning around seeing all kinds of stuff left and right you know motmots and trogans and quetzals and hummingbirds you know galore all kinds of stuff so it's i don't know it's sort of like as a photographer you, you get back and all you can see is the stuff you missed you know it's like <laughs> you just want to 
take another shot at uh, whatever species you know you love down there and and felt like you 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 just missed a photograph of or something um but i think i mean the resplendent quetzal you know um there was a i think a nest of them at um monteverde when we were there and that was that was phenomenal it was very challenging to shoot and i would love to, to get another crack at kind of um you know getting getting those right i think i got some cool shots but I, I think it would be cool to do it again and um you know some of the hummingbird species some of the the um the tanager species that are just stunningly colored and um i don't know it's just an incredible country for for bird photography i don't you, you really can't take a photo and it, it, wrong there you know what i mean <laughs> so, a lot of great subjects but, yeah yeah. Do you now, Josh? Would you say you pref- do you have a preference? Do you like the sort of stalker? Maybe that's a bad way to put it. Uh, maybe the uh, like the. Do you like? I was going to say like a predator stalking your prey, but maybe more like you know. Do you like kind of you know being on foot, you know, and kind of and 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 seeking out uh, you know uh, uh, something you're trying to get a photo of, or do you like kind of like you know, holding a vigil someplace and waiting for it to come to you, um, you know, or, or a mix or what's, what's, what, what's, what gives you like the best vibes when you're in the field shooting picks? Yeah, those are two really different, different ball games, right? I mean, um, I, there, I think there's just things you appreciate about, about both of those, um, approaches, you know, it's, it's, there's a lot of stuff you're not going to get at feeders first of all, right. You're not going to get, some of the, some of the more, um, reclusive species or the, you know, some of the species that don't eat seeds or don't drink nectar or whatever. Right. Um, so, um, you know, I think, yeah, I love, I love doing both. I think there's so many challenges to both. Obviously I think there's more challenges to walking around the Andes, trying to shoot birds in the forest. It's, it's obviously a little bit more difficult than, um, you know, setting up at a feeder and just firing away at a branch that stuff keeps landing on. Right. But, um, I think there's a little bit more reward too to, to, um, to that side of it, just because, you know, the branch, <laughs> you ultimately get, you know, a hundred different species with the same branch. Right. So it's, it's sort of like, okay, this is, uh, right, you want to vary the background a little bit. bit uh, right. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's just, there's just benefits, ups and downs to both of them. And I, I enjoy both doing both things. I think, um, on a, on a photography tour, I'd love to try to engage people to, to, you know, challenge them to do both as well yeah i often say on on some of these trips i like i like to have a mix of looking at birds and looking for birds i think uh a mix of both is good the thrill of the chase is fun but it's also nice to just be someplace where stuff is coming to you and you can just kind of work through it and enjoy it and absorb it so yeah yeah andrew and i were in ecuador back in 2016 i remember um i think it was angel pass right on that that spot in the in the andes and near mindo we were um you know sitting there literally being served hot lunch and coffee and like fresh fruit while just you know hummingbird after hummingbird species was just zooming through right it was just what an incredible afternoon right and then a privilege to get to sit there and watch all that stuff you know happen in front of you as you don't you don't have to really move it right it's just it's just uh like a show right yeah but yeah i mean the the hikes are something completely different i think it's i think they're both really worthwhile yeah yeah it's nice it's nice you get a sense of place sitting at a spot but you also get a sense of place moving through it and seeing what you encounter so they both they both have their place so right now dr andrea love i am really excited to have you here as well i this is our first i think like uh 
cross pod. And, and I, I, like you, you, you guys are like, you guys are like a real pod, you know, um, you're unsigned, unbiased. Pod. Yeah. And I love it. Kristen and I listen. And, uh, I think the first episode I listened to was on like CBD and myths and unknowns. Ah, yeah. And that was a really good one. But, um, maybe before we get into that, maybe tell folks a little bit about your background and how you got into doing what you do. <laughs> sure. Um, so I um, I have a PhD in microbiology and immunology, and I grew up in eastern Connecticut, um, very close to the town of Lyme, Connecticut. And I know we're going to talk about Lyme disease, but um, that actually wasn't really related. It was just kind of coincidental. Um, but when I was a kid, I was... Um, I lived abutting a local park. It's the largest park in whatever, one of the counties in Eastern Connecticut. And, um, my, my family's house had property that kind of, you know, backed up against it. And, you know, my parents were not big on TV and I, we didn't, we never owned video games. And so my, my late brother and I, we would play in the woods behind the house. And so, you know, as a little kid, I was always just very interested in, you know, creatures. Usually it started with like collecting bugs and cataloging them. And there was, um, you know, a Creek by one of my uncle's houses in upstate New York, and we would catch crayfish and, you know, kind of, you know, keep them. And, um, I was always into like a little bit of like the shock factor of things and, you know, the, the grosser, you know, or the more <laughs> squeamish I could make somebody feel when talking about a topic that was, that was awesome for me. Um, and so when I was in elementary school, I was in a, a special program it was a pilot program at my elementary school. And it was, I guess, kind of like how charter schools are structured nowadays, where instead of doing textbook work at desks, we did like creative projects and a lot of group activities. And so it was very, um, it, it kind of like allowed cultivation of my interest in all these things. And so we had to come up with topics and do these little research projects. And then, you know, for second grade, they were pretty rudimentary, right? You had questions and answers and you read your questions and the class kind of guessed things. And then you said no a bunch of times and you read your answer, right? And then as, you know, as you work through third grade, fourth grade, so on and so forth, they got a little more sophisticated. Um, but I, I actually have the VHS of all of these because apparently we recorded them. And, oh, you know, wow. the topics were the topics were all science related. Right. They were they were the life cycle of a tapeworm, cat <laughs> tapeworms, because I because I grew up with cats and, you know, it was something you always were aware of. You had to worm your cat. Um, and you know, parasites gross people mm -hmm. out, or I did, um, I did, um, head lice. And the reason I picked that was because I wanted to make the kids in the class scratch their heads, you know, psychosomatic <laughs> response. And, you know, but I'm like seven, eight years old at the time. Right. And, um, my mom was going back to school to get her teacher certification, um, at Eastern Connecticut State University. And I went with her to the library when I was about eight, probably. And I picked up a medical textbook. It was called The Physician's Guide to Arthropods of Medical Importance. 
literally about bugs that are important to public health. So things that transmit disease or things that bite you and cause reactions. And I would walk around reading this at judo tournaments to anybody that would sit and listen to me. Um, And it just kind of grew from there. So it went from like the bugs themselves to the diseases that the bugs transmitted. Um, And I think by high school, I really knew that I was going to go into infectious diseases. Um, So, you know, I, I, you know, finished grad school, got my doctorate. I actually studied Lyme disease for my, my doctoral research. um, And that was in New York. Um, I, I've, I've, I went to undergrad at Stony Brook on Long Island. I went to grad school just north of Manhattan. Um, so I've been in the epicenter of Lyme disease my whole life. And this was just kind of fortuitous that I did that. Um, the The lab was doing really interesting research, and that's why I picked it. Um, and there's a ton of misinformation on Lyme disease. Yeah. And, and I kind of felt this sense of obligation to participate in debunking it. Um, so after grad school, I, I actually, I work for a biotech company as my full-time job that pays the bills. But, um, during COVID I ended up starting the unbiased science podcast with a, an old college classmate of mine, because we were just very frustrated with the misinformation about COVID. Um, but it was really a nice conduit because I had always wanted to tackle misinformation about GMOs and organic food and all of these things that, um, are just misconstrued in the public perception. And, and what it ends up doing is it um, undermines science, but it also creates undue fear and anxiety. Yeah. And, and the same is true for Lyme disease and, and vaccines and all these sorts of topics. And um, so with Unbiased Science, you know, we do a lot of that. Um, and I'm also the executive director of the American Lyme Disease Foundation, which is um, a nonprofit that really was formed um, by clinicians and scientists. No, it's not patient activism or anything like that. It's it's It was created to really address the misinformation about Lyme disease, which is not new. It's really been around since um, Lyme disease was first identified or, or the pathogen was first identified. So yeah, I mean, I, I, I um, you know, I have my full-time job, but I have my hands in all these other little projects. And um, I ruffle a lot of feathers because I do not hesitate to call out people even with really large platforms that um, spread misinformation. Yeah. I like, I like <laughs> that. And and I mean, some of the stuff you talk about is stuff that like I've found difficult to parse um, information like GMOs and, 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 and like CBD and like, you know, a lot of things that there, it, the misinformation is so pervasive that even if you're trying actively to be educated on this stuff, it can be really hard to figure it out. Um, yeah. And, and it's, 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 it's like multifactorial because you have, you know, there's, there's different layers of, of evidence, right. Of scientific data. And so when you're looking at whether or not there, there is a relationship between, you know, an input and an output, you really need to be looking at the, the highest quality data. And this is typically going to be human randomized controlled trials where you, you know, you know that whatever happens is a direct result of whatever you changed. But the problem is, is that, that's something that scientists are trained to do, right? To kind of get into the the meat of a study and determine if it's an appropriate model and the the statistics are properly applied and all that. But what ends up happening is because, you know, these repositories, you know, they're essentially just just online libraries, they have everything, right? So anyone can go in and type some search words and find some papers. It doesn't mean that they're 
reliable or they're representative of what's really happening. And unfortunately, you know, those things get misconstrued by media outlets, by influencers, by people who, you know, maybe don't realize that what they're reading is, you yeah. know, they're interpreting it incorrectly. A lot of well-intentioned and, people even that just yeah, are exactly. just repeating, repeating exactly. Exactly. And and a lot of it is because people are trying to do what's best for them and for their families and they're trying to navigate this world of misinformation and and you have a lot of people that sound credible talking with a lot of confidence and that you know and often they have advanced degrees. I mean, look at Mehmet Oz, you know, Dr. Oz. I mean, he's he's one of the the biggest examples of of using this appeal to authority, right? He was a very um, you know, experienced cardiac surgeon, but he, you know, basically legitimized all of this, you know, pseudoscience and supplements and all sorts of things. And, and, you know, he's obviously not the only one, but it's, but, you know, the general public is like, well, he's a doctor, like why, you know, I should trust Mm -hmm. him. And, and unfortunately it's much more complicated than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so talking about Lyme disease, like, and and I feel like for birders, especially in the Mid Atlantic and Eastern, you know, sort of Northeast corridor, as well. But like, really, it's it seems like pervasive at this point throughout the U.S. Uh, in Canada. Like, there's there's just risks uh, more and more. You know, for a long time, it was like it seemed like you'd hear about Rocky Mountain spotted fever. That was like the first thing. I'm just speaking like from my own personal memory. And then like Lyme disease, you know, sort of gathered steam and and became this big snowball rolling down a hill and it just seems <laughs> to continue to get bigger and, you know, more of a bruiser. And then now there's alpha gal and like even other things that I haven't can't remember, but that I've seen articles about. Um, <laughs> I guess where to begin, but I, I think Lyme disease is the one everybody is most familiar with and perhaps most concerned about. Um, you know, if you're, I, I, I always marvel, I feel like I've spent my entire life actively trying to get Lyme disease and failing. <laughs> uh, like, I, you know, I, I'm somebody who doesn't actually use a lot of insect repellent. I do, I, I do tend to notice pretty quickly if I've gotten a tick. Like, I, you know, I, I keep pretty good on, uh, on bathing myself. And, uh, and I, but I also like, if I, I'm in the field, I, I feel like I feel ticks pretty quickly, faster even than most people. But, I'm like, how do I not have Lyme disease? I suppose I could, right? Um, what would you say are some of the, you know, the biggest myths about Lyme disease? And like, also what, you know, sort of a, a follow-up to that or like, where should people be concerned or where should they be placing their concerns? Um, and, you know, and and maybe how we should safeguard ourselves. Anyway, big question. Uh, several series yeah. of questions. Yeah, we're... We're open up the can of yeah, worms exactly. here. Yeah. Um, so, so I'll kind of start from the beginning, which is um, there are 900 different species of ticks on the planet that have yet, you know, been identified thus far. And very few of them are things that humans need to be concerned about. So ticks are arachnids. They're related to spiders. Um, they need to feed on blood to survive. They have a very complex life cycle um, and they um, produce an antifreeze that allows them to survive over the winter, which is why, um, you know, you don't often see seasonality really dramatically impacting tick populations. Um, 
But of course, because they rely on hosts, anytime they're looking for food, they're they're really opportunists. They're coming across whatever is available to them. And ticks, very broadly aside from this one little group of ticks that I'm not going to talk about because they're not super important in human context, but ticks typically, hard-bodied ticks as we would think of them, they, um, they live in grasses. They climb up blades of grass and they hold on with their back legs and they wave their front legs around and they are waiting for something warm that is um, secreting carbon dioxide to walk by and then they grab onto them. And it's called questing and that's how they're finding their meals. And um, so typically you're going to find ticks in places where grasses and and those sorts of materials exist because that's, that's how they're finding their food. Um, they don't move very quickly, kind of in the broad scale you know, scheme of things. They don't jump like fleas do, for example. They don't fly like mosquitoes. So they're not quite as mobile as other ectoparasites. Um, but the problem is, is that we develop into their land. We explore their territory and their habitat. And so we're inadvertently going to come across them. Now, Ticks don't prefer humans because we don't have fur that they can hide in. We don't have lots of little crevices. We're taller, so it's harder for them to climb us. They like typically um, like larval and nymph um, ticks phases like small rodents. Um, So for example, the black-legged tick or sometimes called the deer tick, that's the tick that can transmit the Lyme disease bacteria. The, the, the nymph stage, their favorite food is white-footed mice or other rodents. Oh, wow. The, the adults, um, like the white-tailed deer. Now humans are incidental as are cats, as are, you know, whatever else they come across, foxes and coyotes and so on. Um, and they will also bite, you know, and feed on birds. Um, often you'll see, um, some birds sometimes with ticks around their eyes mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but anyway, so ticks need this blood meal. And so to prevent, and and because there are hundreds of species of ticks, there are theoretically different pathogens that can be transmitted by the ticks that do bite humans. Now, one of the biggest misconceptions is that every single tick species transmits all of the different diseases, and that is just false. Mm-hmm. So in the case of Lyme disease, there are only two tick species in the United States that can transmit that bacteria, and that bacteria is, ca- is called Borrelia burgdorferi. And that is the black-legged tick, which sometimes is called the deer tick, um, and that is the um, the Western black-legged tick. And these are Ixodes scapularis and Ixodes pacificus. There are no other tick species in the United States or in North America that can transmit Lyme disease. It is also not transmitted by any other method. It is not transmitted person to person. It is not transmitted by other insects. It's not transmitted by mosquito bites. It is not sexually transmitted. I've heard all the myths. It is transmitted <laughs> only by those two ticks. On top of that, those two ticks need to be feeding for at least 36 hours in order to have a chance to transmit the Lyme disease bacteria. Mm-hmm. And the reason for this is because the way the bacteria are transmitted is due simply to density. And what I mean by that is when you when you look at a tick, they have a structure inside called the midgut. And you can kind of think of it like their stomach. And when they don't have a blood meal, the bacteria are kind of hanging out in the midgut and they're not really reproducing. They're alive, but they're not very active. 
when a tick takes a blood meal in, which comes in through the salivary glands and enters the midgut, that oxygen, that glucose from the blood, it starts to turn on the metabolism of the bacteria themselves and they start to replicate. Mm -hmm. So they're reproducing and they get to a point where there's too many of them in the midgut and they're forced into the salivary gland through density. And once they're forced into the salivary gland, then they can get into the animal that the tick is feeding on. And that process takes 36 hours at a minimum. So it's not a situation where the the bacteria are already in the salivary gland or they're actively swimming or moving toward the salivary gland. Um, So it it really, it's time dependent. Mm -hmm. So if you're able to remove a deer tick promptly before 36 hours, you have almost zero chance of getting Lyme disease. That's a pretty good window. So it's like you're, you're yeah. out in the field, you're birding. You, if you notice it right away and you remove it, you're, you're going to be in pretty good shape. Pretty much clear. And even if you yeah. go home and if you shower and, and you, you know, are careful about, you know, checking all the good hiding spots. You, the nooks and, nooks and crannies, as they say. Yeah. Then, uh, <laughs> Then yeah, so that, that there's actually a pretty good window there, longer than I think a lot of people might realize. Yeah, and there's a lot of misinformation about this transmission window because there are people who you know they use anecdotes, they elicit fear. Oh well, I you know a tick a tick bit me for thirty seconds and I was immediately infected, and and it's simply not true. My 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 previous lab actually did a lot of studies on this, and we used to we had a tickery, we raised ticks, we infected ticks, we collected ticks in the field. I've been bitten by hundreds of ticks in my life, and I've never gotten any tick-borne illness. And that leads me to the next point, which is the best way to prevent any potential infections, and, and maybe we'll we'll dabble on some of the other ones like Rocky Mountain or Alpha Gal, or, and Alpha Gal is not an infection, but anything that's caused by a tick is preventing the tick bite in the first place. So there are a lot of really easy things um, that you can do to reduce your likelihood of getting tick bites. So first is using effective repellents. Um, and the only two that are effective against ticks are um, picaridin, sometimes called picaridin, um, and DEET. And I know there's a lot of misinformation about DEET. DEET is perfectly safe. It is not the same as DDT. That was an insecticide. That is banned. That is bad. Um, DEET is an insect repellent. And the way that these work is they essentially, um, they mask the your odor so that the insect or the arthropod can't actually detect you. So they're less likely to kind of seek you out. So DEET and, and um, picaridin are very effective. Um, you typically can use 30% DEET. That's going to protect you for about six to eight hours against ticks. 20% picaridin will be similar. Um, the time window for ticks is a little bit lower than mosquitoes. Um, and higher concentrations are also safe. And I think something that the big difference between, say, a 30% DEET and maybe an 80% DEET is the duration of protection. Mm-hmm. So if you're using a 30% DEET, it's still going to be very effective. But if you're out for a full day and you're sweating a lot, you may need to reapply. Mm-hmm. Um, that's layer number one. Now, I know there's a lot of people who are like, well, I want a natural you know, thing. The natural things, the oils of various lemon and eucalyptus, they do not work against ticks. Right. Maybe, maybe other um, things, but not ticks. Yeah. And, and even data for mosquitoes is really not impressive. Um, and, and, and that really plays into the appeal to nature fallacy. Essential oils are actually like 
hundreds of chemicals together. And just because they're natural doesn't mean they're safe. There's, you know, things in nature are constantly trying to kill you. Um, DEET has been studied for 70 years. It's very, very safe, very effective. You can use it for, for kids two months and older. Um, and, and some of these essential oils um, you, you can't use on kids because they're very irritating and potentially harmful. Um, so yeah, so DEET and picaridin. If you are spending a lot of time in the field, you may also want to treat your clothing with an insecticide like permethrin. Mm-hmm. Um, this this you want to follow the the um, application instructions, particularly if you have cats, because it needs to be fully dry before it is around cats. This particular compound can be very harmful to them. Is permethrin um, effective against ticks, or it is very okay. effective against ticks? Yeah. So, so I use it more so, for chiggers than ticks, but. Um, yeah, so it's super effective for ticks, and there actually are some dog ectoparasitics that do have permethrin because it's not harmful to dogs like it is for cats. Um, and obviously, dogs are typically outdoors more often. Most, you know, cat domestic cats, you know, indoor only hopefully, typically. Hopefully, yeah. Um, yeah, hopefully. Um, but anyway, so permethrin, you pre-treat your clothing, and actually will last for at least five washes or so, and in. What it does is it actually kills ticks. It's an insecticide. So if a tick is crawling up your body looking for a crevice to latch onto, um, it will theoretically encounter the permethrin on the clothing and will will die. So um, if you're only treating certain clothing, socks and pants and shoes are good um, because, again, ticks are crawling from the ground up. They're not dropping from above. So it takes time for them to get up your body theoretically up to two hours to get to a good place. Um, So you've got that. Then, of course, you have tick checks. So every time you come in from outdoors, check all your crevices. Um, Another thing that you can do is you can also throw your clothing into the dryer and run the tumble on hot for about 15 to 30 minutes. That may kill any ticks that are hiding in the clothing. Or if you have like um, like a blanket that you lay on in the ground, like I know Josh likes to lay on the ground when he's doing photography to get that vantage point. Um, anything that you can throw in the dryer, you can do that. Um, showering when you come in after within two hours of coming in from outdoors, that'll wash up any, um, ticks that that are crawling, but haven't attached. Um, and, and another thing I like to recommend is you can do a secondary tick check like a few hours later, because as I mentioned, it takes a couple of, it can take up to a couple of hours for a tick to um, find a suitable po- place to feed. And when they do that, they insert this, um, it's it's kind of, it looks kind of like a steak knife on both sides. It's like their little proboscis. It's called a hypostome. Um, so they shove that into your skin and they cement themselves in there. And that takes some time. Um, and so if you find a tick soon after, or if you shower and then you do a subsequent tick check, you may find that they have settled and you can locate them. Um, and so a secondary tick check, tick check is always good. If you have kids, you want to tick check them because they're usually not going to be as thorough and you want to, and and there might be places on your own body that you need a, a helping hand to look for, um, but you want to really do check all the, the nooks and crannies. So, you know, genital regions, armpits, navel. Um, I've had a bunch of ticks that like to bite like right inside the belly button. Yeah, waistline, um, sock line often, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, in between the toes even can be a place, um, especially if you wear like hiking sandals, um, behind the ears, um, um, anywhere that there's like a warm place that's kind of protected. They're typically not going to bite you like on your forearm because that's really obvious and it's not protected and, and it's not ideal for them. Um, 
So, and then the other thing that a lot of people do is wear light colored clothing. Now, depending on what you're doing outdoors, that might draw more attention to you than you want. But if it's something that's feasible, um, and then also tucking your socks in or tucking your pants into your oh, socks that really does work. so that the ticks, yeah. So the ticks will crawl over the pants it's, as opposed to into the pants. It's also extremely fashionable. That's, that's, it's very yeah. fashion. It's yeah. very fashion. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, the trade-off is, you know, lower risk of uh, infectious diseases, yeah, right? Yeah. So fashion versus that. Yeah. yeah. So the yeah. lighter color, does that, is that actually a repellent? No, it just easier makes it easier them. to find okay. them. Yeah. 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 So, so again, you know, I typically don't do that. My, my wardrobe is pretty much all black, but I'm pretty good and pretty, I'm, I'm, I wear deep, like it's nobody's business. I bathe in deep. I lo- I put lotion on with, yeah. you know, it's very safe there. You know, I, I get it. There's a lot of misinformation out there it can sound really scary. Um, I want to assuage people's concerns that DEET is one of the best things you can do to, and, or pick a ride and jot, you know, a lot of people don't like the smell of DEET. There are new formulations that, that don't have as much of an odor. Um, chemistry is complicated, different compounds have different scents, but also pick a ride in or, you know, is also super effective. Um, and those ones have less of an odor. And so that some people might like that better. Um, but yeah, that's like number one, if you're going to do anything, that's the bare minimum mm-hmm. that you should Yeah, do. Kristen really likes the DEET as well. She finds it s- super effective. And uh, yeah. again, I don't use too much repellent, but Josh, you're a pick a guy. I always yeah. wondered this actually, and I, I forget to, to ask Andrea. I don't know why I've always forgotten to ask this, but is there any data on uh, doubling up on pick a and in DEET? Um, that's a good question. I think that... There probably is somewhere, um, but you kind of hit like a saturation window where you only need a certain percentage of either to, you know, um, have protection for a duration. So if you're applying them both at the same time and you're applying 30% deed and 20% pick a right, and you're probably not going to extend the window more than eight hours, you would have to increase the concentrations of the individual compounds. They have slightly different mechanisms of action, but it's not going to hurt you because like when we were in Uganda, I had put DEET on, but then we were in the swamp and not ticks, but I, I get, I'm a lightning rod for mosquitoes. So I was getting swarmed and I used the pick wipes that were in the backpack and, you know, whatever, the mosquitoes finally stopped eating me alive. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not harmful to double up. I, I just don't, I don't think there's an an advantage of doing that. Um, Um, and, and what about like, I feel like alpha gal, is that actually a, a, like, what is, where did this come from? How new is it? And like, I know, I know three different friends of mine that have, have it now that are birders, all birders. And, and like one of the guys is like super into smoked meats and grilling and oh, so he's yeah. Sad. And like he, it was, it was yeah. like a big part of his, what he did to enjoy, like, yeah. you know, was just, you know, and now he can't eat like red meat. Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting. So before I jump in there, I just want to say one more thing about Lyme disease. So, so Lyme disease is a bacterial infection and, you know, we won't get into the symptoms and stuff, but if you do develop symptoms of Lyme disease, it is very readily treatable with antibiotics, standard course, um, and I've talked a lot about that. So George, if you want to put my, you know, website on there, you know, yeah. there's lots of resources there. It's very treatable. There's a lot of misinformation about um, persistent infections that last after antibiotics. And there's, there's just no robust evidence to support that, right. but it's, it's very hard to parse out what's, what's real. And, what's and not. I, and I do, and uh, I guess, you know, we, we uh, you know, the, 
it, it, this is a big topic and we could we could really go on it for a long time but <laughs> i do like i know some people that have you know health severe serious health issues that um they think is Lyme related, um, but can't, it's diagnosis is problematic, right? A lot of the time. Um, yeah. So, so the tests for Lyme disease, it's an antibody test, meaning it's looking at your immune response to exposure to the bacteria. And so you can test positive on a Lyme disease, a credible Lyme disease test, an FDA approved one for years after you recovered from a bacterial infection. It's like the COVID antibody tests, right? It's it's a it's an indication of immune response. And so a lot of people are misled into believing that that that's an indication that you still have Lyme disease and that's just it's 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 a remnant of your immune system, right? And um and because the bacteria is very complicated, it, you can't really do like a rapid test like you can with some viral infections or like a strep culture because it doesn't live in high numbers in a certain region in your body where you can't like swab it and culture it like you can for strep bacteria in your throat. And so um, there's not, there's not great mm-hmm. tools to like diagnose active infection. And so it, it can be very misleading and people, um, and obviously people kind of propagate misinformation, but it's very confusing for people. Um, and, and there's also fake tests that are sold that use like urine and other, you know, bodily fluids that are not reliable. They're, they're, they're completely fake. Um, or they're saying that they're doing a PCR test and there's no FDA approved diagnostics that use PCR for Lyme disease. And so, um, it's really hard because people go to CVS and they see a Lyme disease test there and they're like, well, that sounds legit, but it's not. And so, you know, you have these kind of, um, false positives that are being reported and, and because the symptoms of Lyme disease, aside from the bullseye rash, which, some people don't notice. Some people, it's hidden on like your scalp. You know, um, it, it does present in sixty to eighty percent of infections, but it's not always noticed by the person. Mm-hmm. The other symptoms can be very generic: headache and fatigue and lethargy and muscle right. aches. And so, I mean, there is there are dozens of things that can cause those same symptoms. And a lot of times, because this like Lyme activism um, community is so aggressive that people may be misled into believing that they have Lyme when in reality their multiple sclerosis is undiagnosed or they have, you know, another, uh, they have a viral infection that's led to some persistent symptoms. Now, there are a small proportion of people who credibly were infected with the bacteria that after antibiotics and after the infection is gone, they'll have some lingering symptoms. Um, it's about 10% of people who who legitimately had Lyme disease, and this is called post-treatment Lyme disease syndrome. It's been kind of characterized for decades. Um, and those typically are a result of residual immune system response, so inflammation. Typically, you'll see um, people that present with like the Lyme arthritis, which is the asymmetric joint swelling that that may last for a period of time, or they may have some joint pain and so on. Um, it typically will resolve within a period of months or so, and, and symptom alleviation medications will help with that. But it's not because the bacteria are like hiding out. They're not dormant. They're not making biofilms. They're not persisters. Um, you know, and unfortunately it leads people to start taking these harmful and unproven treatments, um, extended courses of antibiotics or other things that are non-antibiotics that can be really, really dangerous. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it is it's such a it's such a sort of a morass of uh of yeah. stuff. Um and and it's and and I don't want to go too far off the rails here, but it's complicated by the fact that there are clinicians, physicians, healthcare providers who kind of um, feed off of this, and they make money by kind of prescribing these things that are unproven, and and so it kind of legit legitimizes it, and it becomes really hard for the general public to kind of know what's real and right, what's to not. Sort it out. Um, yeah, yeah, um, but yeah. So alpha gal, yeah. alpha gal is really interesting because it's actually an allergy. It's an allergic reaction to a sugar, um, and the sugar is called alpha gal. It's technically called galactose alpha one three galactose, and this is a sugar that is present in animal meat, um, non human animal meat. So. Um, beef and um, venison and rabbit and other sorts of things. And what's interesting is that it seems like some people will develop this allergic reaction after a tick bite. And it's not the tick itself, but the hypothesis is that the tick, because I said they have this complex life cycle that throughout their life they have to feed on different animals, they previously fed on an animal that have this alpha gal sugar in their in their tissues, right? A rabbit or a deer or something like that. And so then the salivary gland has some residue of this sugar. And when they feed on a human that gets bitten, um, you know, incidentally, the person flags that sugar as, well, this doesn't belong to me. I need to have an immune response against it. And so they elicit an allergic reaction against this sugar. So it's very similar to an allergic reaction against gluten um, or uh, peanut allergies or any of these other allergies that people would have because allergies are just these inappropriate immune reactions to molecules that should be viewed as benign, should be viewed as, you know, harmless. But for some reason, a person's immune system is saying, hey, I, I need to react to this. Um, and right now, the tick species in the U.S. that seems to be implicated in this is the Lone Star oh, okay. tick, which is a very different mm -hmm. tick than what can transmit Lyme disease. However, the Lone Star tick is a very aggressive tick. Um, you've probably seen the adult females. They have a white spot on their back. They're big. They're fast. Um, they crawl really aggressively, and they're very prevalent. They used to be more prevalent in the southeast U.S., but particularly in, like, New Jersey, like the Pine Barrens area, they're loud and proud. Um, and, and so right now, um, data are suggesting that about one to 5% of the population have alpha gal allergy. Now, some of that is unrelated to ticks, um, that they develop this allergy independently, mm -hmm. but it, it is this very interesting phenomenon that it's not transmitting a disease, but it's actually, transmitting a chemical, a molecule that is creating a subsequent allergic reaction. And, and of course, the treatment for that is you can't eat meats that contain the sugar. So you have to avoid, um, you know, your red meats. Um, so beef, rabbit, is rabbit a red meat? I don't know. Mm. Beef, lamb, venison, um, pork, um, anything, medical devices that may be um, bovine or porcine. So heart valves that were derived from animals. Mm. Um, certain things like heparin or antivenoms are also derived from animals. You may have a reaction to that. Um, their sugar might be present in that. Um, dairy products, of course, um, and gelatin, which, which has animal products. Um, the good news is that it's not found in poultry, fish, seafood, eggs, fruits and vegetables. 
Um, most people will have a mild uh, allergic response, but um, it, it may be good good advice to have like an EpiPen or something on hand if you do have a serious response. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, for diagnosis of this, you want to see an allergist, um, and they'll they'll go through your medical history and they may do some blood testing and and that sort of stuff. Um, but the same thing, prevent tick bites, prevent your likelihood of possibly developing this weird allergy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that one, I just feel like it's, I'd never heard of it. And all of a sudden I know three people that are dealing with it. And it's just like, like yeah, I think, I think some of it is, um, we see things when they get more media attention that like reports start to rise. So I think, you know, there's always been like a baseline presence of it. Um, however, tick geography is expanding, especially the Lone Star ticks with climate change. So previously where the Northeast was less hospitable to those ticks and the climate and the, and the humidity and the things that they like, um, that's changing. Mm -hmm. So we are seeing expansion of tick range, you know, uh, all, most tick species, um, are seeing, uh, expansion of their ranges. Um, so certainly, you know, where it might've been more restricted to, country or sorry states more in the southeastern part of the country we're now seeing a little bit more in the mid-atlantic region Um, but it's not common by any stretch um but i think it's it's just such an interesting pathology that it gets a lot of um attention and last summer i think i saw 30 different news articles about it in the span of a week so i don't think that that helps either Mm. andrea if folks want more information about uh, Lyme or tick-borne disease in general, um, where would you steer them? Um, so the CDC is a very reliable source. I know there's obviously people that don't trust the CDC. Um, please don't seek out organizations that claim to be patient advocacy organizations. Those are the ones that typically are spreading misinformation. Um, the Infectious Disease Society of America is also a very reliable source. Um, the American Lyme Disease Foundation, my organization, um, all of my board are researchers or clinicians who are experts in infectious diseases. They're not providers that were psychiatrists once upon a time and decided they were going to start treating chronic Lyme. Um, our website is aldf.com. And, um, and, and also my podcast, Unbiased Science, we do a lot of tick and Lyme related stuff for obvious reasons. Yes. Well, before when you were talking about how like the gross out factor stuff kind of appeals to you, I, I had to laugh because I, I witnessed that firsthand, uh, on our trip to Uganda. Um, I was telling, did I do? (laughs) Well, there was a couple instances, but there was like, you know, I felt like, and and this sounds weird to say, um, that there was a fair amount of excrement on this on this trip. <laughs> like, yeah, everybody like within a day was like, we're all going to talk about poop all the time. <laughs> and also, like, there was that, and and there were some good quote unquote poop stories, um, and yes. uh, and those are perhaps best uh, you know retold <laughs> not on a podcast. Although that could be a good you know podcast series, maybe. Uh, Maybe yes, that'll be one for yes. you, Josh, to uh, to get going. But uh, <laughs> um, and yeah, um, that's a, that's a whole a whole other ball of wax, so to speak. But there was also like quite a bit of animal excrement that we encountered as well. Oh yeah, you know, there was like, yeah. like Josh, you got nailed uh, by the chimps. 
there was like, we got nailed by the, you know, I remember getting nailed by a gecko on my face all of a sudden. Yes. You know, yeah, I got pooped on by a saw wing, like way up, like (laughs) bullseye on my arm. Like what kind of aim was that? Wow, that's impressive, actually. I didn't even know about that one. Yeah, I think (laughs) think at one point we tallied at dinner one night. There was like six different, you know, species that had pooped on somebody on the trip at some point. So at any rate. Well, I think the the day that the chimps pooped mostly on Josh and partially on Kristen (laughs) and a, a little bit of spillover onto me. I think that was the night that Josh also got pooped on by a gecko <laughs> while in our lodge <laughs> where he thought he was protected. Thought you were safe. It, it wasn't me. It was, it was my hat that got, that got, oh, that's right. it, was, it was just like, right. I left it out and it, yeah, I found a perfectly round little gecko. Shit <laughs> and then, and then I looked up and there was a gecko like on the ceiling. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's talk about Uganda a little bit and maybe the, you getting, uh, I, I mean, I, I would like to know, you know, what attracted you guys to the trip? What, like, what, what, uh, made you think, you know what, Uganda, you know, there's obvious, there's some obvious things and, and maybe those were obvious for you as well. Maybe there were some less obvious things, you know, um, was it Josh that you really wanted to be pooped on by a chimpanzee and get that all over, you know, your, your camera lens, you know, what, what was, uh, what was the, the thing that piqued your interest? Yeah. Yeah. We, I, I got, I got tagged good that day. Um, it was, uh, but the, the, the Rangers, uh, called it being blessed. Um, but luckily it was, uh, it was mostly, yeah. Yeah. mostly comprised of, of fruit pulp, I think. So it, it, it didn't clean off too, too difficult, but, uh, but yeah, it was, uh, well, was, and, was, and, uh, what was his name? Nelson. He, he took a chunk of it and he smelled it and he was like, Oh yeah, it's not. It's fruits. It's not stinky. It's all good. Like I thought he was gonna taste it at one point. Um, I think uh, for for this trip, for me, I mean, when I saw shoe bills on your on your website, George, I was I was hooked right there. I, it was, it's a bird I've always wanted to see. Um, that was uh, that was really a big draw for me. But also the gorillas and the the chimps too. I mean. I think seeing, you know, everybody thinks about Africa and like, it seems like, you know, the, the quote unquote big five and, and the big mammals are, are obviously quite a draw. I mean, they're fascinating. Everybody, I mean, they're dramatic. Everybody wants to see them. We definitely wanted to see them, but I think, um, kind of low key, the, the gorillas and the chimps were something that I think I've always wanted to see in the wild and kind of maybe never thought I would. So I, I don't know, getting to, getting to that as the, as the, the marquee billing for me, I think was the, was the thing. What about you, Andrea? Yeah. I mean, I don't discriminate about animals. Um, you know, I been kind of obsessed with all sorts of things my whole life. I mean, I did, uh, you know, I mean, I was, I was, I was never like a birder birder or a bird the, photographer. The flies is really what you were, right? Yeah, right. totally. I was like, let's get some, <laughs> let's get some sleeping sickness. Um, but like, you know, I was obsessed with blue-footed boobies in third grade because their name was Booby, and I thought that was hilarious. And they're turquoise, you know. I mean, so you know, all the anything that's got like this kind of unique draw or, or evolutionary, you know, thing uh, to me has always been really interesting. Um, you know, certainly with the gorillas and the chimps, you know, the fact that we're 98, 99% genetically similar to them is fascinating. But I think even with the other primates, like if you looked at like the faces of the olive baboons and I know George, they're your favorite, (laughs) um, 
<laughs> the babies, I mean, the babies are, they're the features and the facial expressions. I mean, they're, they're observing you and they're like absorbing the scene and they're, you know, there's, there's like, you know, it's human mm-hmm. almost, um, you know, and they're very aware of, of everything that's going on. Um, you know, but for me, I mean, I really like just exploring, I think, underappreciated places. And I feel like when you think about Africa, uh, everybody's like, oh, I want to go on safari. I want to do South Africa. I want to do this. And like, yeah, I mean, there's there's an appeal to that too, right? There are places, places everywhere, I think, that are beautiful and have appeal. But I think people don't, they're not like, well, Uganda, that's top of my list. And I think, you know, people don't really appreciate the diversity of like ecology and and climate and and topology and things like that. Um, you know, and and even like I was talking to my dentist um earlier and you know, they're, you know, people don't realize that like the savannah and the lions, it's a, a completely different ecosystem than the mountains and the jungle where the gorillas are going to be found. And so I feel like with the Uganda, the itinerary, we got a little bit of everything, right? We got some kind of, you know, savannah game drive stuff. We got some water, you know, um, you know, with the, the channel, the channel boat ride. And, you know, we got forest and we got, you know, meadow and grasslands, we got really a little bit of everything. And I think there was so much in each place, you know, you're, you kind of are overwhelmed. You're kind of exhausted every single day because you're just, (laughs) you're just taking in so much that's new. Yeah. Yeah. That, that to me too, um, that's always a draw for our trips, especially some of the early ones we did where I kind of wanted to see as much as possible. I mean, Ecuador, for example, drew me because it had the Andes, it had the Amazon, it had the Galapagos, you know, it had like so many different you know, ecosystems in one kind of, you know, accessible place. Right. And I think for Uganda too, you know, that was, that was a big thing where you're up against the the Congo basin in the West side of the country and you can see birds, you know, in, in the forests there that, that you're never going to see anywhere else. And by the way, George, I came up with the title for this episode for oh, you. Really? Don't worry about it. I got it. Yeah. You ready? U- Uganda birding licensed to ill adopted. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I love it. Wow. Yeah. And then we'll have to show a picture of an Illidopsis, which is like, you know, it's like totally a birder's bird, right? Awesome sounding. Small brown bird. Yeah, but like just kind of brown, right? But what a great name, Illidopsis, you know? I like it. Nice to see it was one of those... Uh- it was one of those bears. I mean, that, that, you know, Phil kind of, and you, and you drew out of the forest, you know, it was like one of those reclusive kind of little, you know, we, we spent a lot of time kind of trying to see that guy and we almost barely saw it. We got one. Wait, really it good was look, the right? one like, that like went back and forth across the trail a few times. A right? times yeah. 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 This was, that was one of my favorite days actually of that trip was birding the, that was the Bwindi trail. Yes, birding yeah. just the main yeah. trail at Bwindi and so many good forest birds that day displaying African broadbill, um, you know, the black bee eater at the end. Um, and a bunch of good forest birds, all sorts of green bulls. That was a wonderful day. And yeah, the Illidopsis, which we'd been hearing, like, I think we'd heard it, you know, I don't know how many times at that point. And then finally, this that one, uh, we, we did get to see it well. So The cool thing for me is I think almost all of the animals we saw were life listeners for me. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, it is. It's, it's a bunch of stuff. I think... I think what a lot of people don't realize necessarily about Uganda is the forest birding and how good the forest birding it is. And also 
how difficult it is. Um, yeah. yeah, like, you know, scaly-breasted ildops is a pretty common bird. We heard a bunch of times. It took us a while to connect with one. Um, and, yeah, there's a number of birds like that that, you, you know. It's like that elsewhere in the tropics, but I think it's different in Africa. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, and it's also, I think, you know, I mean, obviously I haven't traveled as extensively, but like when we went to Costa Rica and we went to El Ecuador, like the culture there, it's, it's ecotourism, you know, I think very similar, but it's, but it's much more focused around the smaller animals, especially the birds. And, and I think a lot of that is because the hummingbird diversity is so yeah. big in those countries that it kind of lends itself well to kind of building out birding trips and birding tours. I mean, you know, we found this incredible guide in um, Monteverde. I found him on TripAdvisor, you know, and I was just looking to hire a a person, you know, to help us for the day because we didn't, we had some locations we wanted to go, but we didn't really know where we were supposed to look specifically. And he was excellent. And he was a he was a student, um, like zoology student or, or naturalist student or something like that. But I feel like in Africa, um, you know, it's it's much more focused on like the bigger animals, the big five, you know, the the gorillas and the, you know, and the chimps and, and all of that is fantastic. But I think that it's, you know, the the birding tours are really, it's not as well developed or as accessible as maybe some of the other kind of tropical countries on, you know, in the new world side of things, because, you know, tourism or tourists haven't really demanded that of Uganda yet, because there's a lot of other things to do and see and so on. And I think, you know, it, it really, you, it like, it like suits a specific people, you know, type of Yeah, I totally Um, fantasize about the first canopy tower there that goes in at, (laughs) you know, on the Royal Mile or, you know, in the Bodongo Forest or, or, you know, in Bwindi, um, you know, it could be amazing. And some of the feeder setups like they do elsewhere, if people put in the time um, in some of the forest birding spots we visited, it could just be utterly amazing. But let's talk about the gorillas a little bit. Like, Josh, when you like were thinking about grills before you left, what was, you know, what, you know, what was your actual experience like once you encountered them in, in, uh, um, in Bwindi and, and same for you, Andrea, after Josh, I'd be curious to hear what your experience, you know, how it, how it, uh, actually unfolded and what it was like. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a person who's particularly, particularly prone to hyperbole, but I feel like, I mean, the word magical just kept coming to mind, especially, I mean, the gorillas and, and also the chimps too. When, when that one um, climbed down um, the, the, the trunk of the tree after we kind of waited about an hour for him um, and just sat there and, and looked at us for a little while and kind of looked around and he, he didn't, you know, he didn't feel jumpy or skittish, right? He just kind of sat and stared and it was just, I mean, everybody got quiet, right? Everybody's like watching him. And, and it was just, it, it was just, I mean, you're, it's timeless to like, kind of to sit and look at that, at that animal. And then to hear the call to, to the rest of his tribe to come down the trees and, um, you know, to, co- to, to collect and kind of move through the forest, which is what they did next. Um, that was just, just an, a magical experience. Um, and with the gorillas too, I mean, when, when we got to them, you know, you, you have this kind of picture in your mind, I guess. I'd, I'd seen some videos on, on YouTube of people who had seen them in, in, in uh, both Uganda and Rwanda, I think. 
um, where, you know, you're, you're kind of on a, the side of a, a mountain and kind of watching them from a little bit from afar. And sometimes one of them gets close, but, you know, it, in this situation we we came up on them in a, you know, a very kind of dense, um, area, you know, I, I guess they don't call it impenetrable forest for nothing, right. It's, it's, it was very thick in that, in that spot. And some of the guys cut through some of the grasses with the machete and, and there we are, you know, right on top of a, a group of these, of these gorillas, just kind of watching them eat, listening to them crunch on, on bamboo and, um, you know, listening to the communication that, that, uh, the guides, right. Had established with, um, with kind of the alpha males to let them know that, that everything was, was chill. Yeah. And, they kind of do those like grunt cool. sounds, right. So like these, those, those low grunts. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, that was, it was just an incredible experience for, for the full hour that we had with them. It was just, just amazing. Yeah. Andrea, how, how was that experience for you? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't even know if you really can like put it into words, but it's, but it, but it's, but it's, you know, it's something I talk about even when I'm talking about like tick-borne diseases, like, like you're a visitor into their world, right? Like humans are just another species on this planet. And while we like to think of ourselves as, you know, in charge of everything, I mean, the reality is, is that many species were here well before we were, and they probably will well before, you know, we're well, well after we're gone. And so, you know, it was like you kind of entered this universe where you were just a spectator, right? And you kind of got to be a part of it for a little bit. And they were, I mean, the thing that was the coolest part was that they were completely unbothered by us. Like we were just, it wasn't like they were annoyed or that we were interfering or intruding or interloping or whatever. I mean, we were just like invisible to them. I mean, they knew we were there, but they just went around on with their day-to-day business. They're snacking, they're working on their nests for the chimps up in the trees, the, you know, the, the, um, in our, in our, um, gorilla troop, the, the alpha, he was sitting upright when we arrived and, you know, they had cut through some of the grasses and we were, I don't know, five feet or something from him. And, and he was kind of picking at his hand and he was like, you know, scratching on his face. And then he like rolled over and like laid on his belly with like his, his head propped up on his hand and he kind of just like chilled mm-hmm. there. And, you know, there were some youngsters that were eating. There were some females that were eating and they were kind of wandering back and forth. And then eventually they were like, yeah, we're done here. And they walked like past us and like off. And it was just like, all right, well, we got this little, you know, view into their day-to-day lives and, and, you know, they, they were done kind of, granting us that, that, um, you know, pleasure, whatever, um, which, which, you know, was really, really cool. Cause it wasn't contrived and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't artificial. I mean, certainly the trackers, you know, located them, but aside from that, like they were just left to their own devices. Yeah. That's always my favorite thing. And it does, it just really, you, you, you were saying it kind of reminds me of like a land before time. Like you're, you're in this, you know, fabled forest, which is beautiful forest. And, and, and so you do feel almost like in a parallel universe and then, yeah, they're just doing their thing. They're living their lives and they're like, yeah, I see over there, but like, you know, I got some plants to eat here. I got, you know, I got my brother <laughs> or sister to play with, you know? Um, and, and uh, yeah, it's just, just that's I, I love that experience of just getting to watch animals live their lives, do what they do. Uh, and that's that was very yeah. much like that. What what would you guys say? Was there anything about Uganda um, that surprised you that, you know, that 
you weren't expecting um, that was really different or was it, you know, kind of, you know, kind of what you, what you thought it would be? Um, I, I, I guess, um, I don't know about surprised. I, I think, um, for me particularly, I'm always looking for that, um, interface between birding and bird photography. And, and for me, I think, um, just my own personal take I, that was, that was kind of what I spent every day kind of looking for, because I, I do love both activities. Um, but there's this real, um, sort of dichotomy and sometimes it's in conflict where you're, where you're trying to do, you know, one thing you're trying to see, Mm -hmm. you know, one species kind of low in the canopy or low in, you know, um, uh, eye level or, or, you know, just, just to get a good look and a good photo on a, on a nice spot. Um, and you know, that can be challenging with a, with a group, you know, you remember sometimes I, Right, right. I mean, that's an that's another thing, right? Where sometimes you're just chasing one yeah. species through a forest. I was so impressed the at the way you moved with all with your gear. I was like, <laughs> wow. I was like, we there somehow, some way, we've got to get it where Josh gets a shot of this. And I felt like we were we were so close, and it just didn't quite cooperate. Um, Josh did not get a shot of it, but um, you know, it was it was <laughs> very challenging. Very yeah. well, plus it was it was pouring rain yeah, that morning too, so it was the other thing, conditions. right? But um. But, you know, I mean, the, the forest birding where you're looking up, kind of trying to identify stuff in a canopy top is is awesome. You can see it. And that's sometimes the only way you're going to see it. Um, and then there's other, you know, there's other stuff where you're just trying to spend like, you know, I spent a lot of time around the, the rest stops around the marinas where we were kind of just staging to go somewhere. And if I could steal, you know, 10 minutes away behind a building to look at some weavers or look at some mouse birds. I, I mean, loved seeing you work the my, Northern gray-headed sparrow. It's like one of the, you know, one of the most common birds, <laughs> but you, you like, I love that you were like, it's like his be- one of his favorite yeah, photos. <laughs> I thought that was so cool. It's like, you don't, you don't see that. I, you know? I love stuff like yeah. that. Right. I love stuff like that where you get to, I mean, I, I like also trying to appreciate, you know, more common species or, you know, species that are kind of overlooked because they're not gorgeous colors, you know, bright, brilliant reds or whatever, Give but, um, you know, right, right. And, and I don't know, it's, I, I think that was, it's, it's a lot of fun to get to shoot stuff around those areas. And, you know, that's why I was looking for PX yes. in, uh, in, in, uh, towns, you know, where we can see them a little bit closer or, or pied crows or some of those species that, you know, were harder to see, you know, you're not going to necessarily see them in the places we were going to, to see birds, right? Like these are going to be more town species yeah. and that was going to be our, our chance. To One see of my favorite stuff. moments of that, the trip actually was watching these pied crows, which are really more like ravens. They're really big. They got yeah, I love heavy them. long bills, but I watched in one of the gas station stops we made, there was a, a common kestrel that came in to bring a chick, a lizard. Uh, it looked like, it, you know, I couldn't tell what it was exactly. It was some distance away, but it dropped off a lizard for its chick. And and then you could, and the chick just starts wailing and making all this sound. And then you can see the pied crows start to circle and slowly descend. And then, and eventually these two pied crows came in and just like one kind of like went for it. And then the other actually you know, kind of faked out the the kestrel chick and got it. And then, man, that kestrel chick was so upset. I felt so bummed bummed for it. But you just see they're just, I mean, it was just watching the whole play of those things was was a lot of fun. They really are smart birds. Yeah, that was, I think that was after, wasn't that Ishasha where we were that in that, in that town? Uh, I might've been, it was, it was that drive. Yeah, it was that drive. I think I remember we, we saw speckled pigeon. Yes. I was, I was kind of trying to keep the species to like the actual towns we were in and the areas we were in, but we saw speckled pigeons there. We saw African Harrier Hawks right near there. Mm-hmm. And 
and those kestrels that were really cool. Yeah. And then some of the best looks at pied crows that, that we got that trip. I mean, it was, it was great to get to see them in kind of the urban area. Yeah. It's, it's like such a common bird and, but such a cool bird, like, you know, ravens and crows. I mean, he's got his, he's got his nice little fancy vest on. Yeah, too, exactly. Which, They're well attired. You know, I like. They're very well attired. Yeah. 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 So, um, we should put a bow on this soon, but I do want to ask Andrew, was there a standout favorite moment for you? Um, in, in Uganda? Oh, my goodness. I I don't know if I could pin a singular moment. I, I feel like for me, you know, obviously, like, when we travel, it's it's usually for ecology, species, wildlife, nature. But we, but, but we also try to get a little bit of, like, the local culture and, you know, historical stuff. Like, when we were in the Yucatan and we just kind of drove around, you know, we popped into some little towns and, you know, saw some beautiful churches and so on. And then you can kind of look it up and, and see some of the history. And, you know, so I feel like with, with Uganda, I think, you know, we got some of that like on our drives because our guides, you know, our local guides, um, you know, would chat with us. And, you know, after a few days, they kind of warmed up to our ridiculous, you know, humor. <laughs> and, um, you know, Judith, Judith really appreciated our 10 days of Christmas, 12 days of, oh, that's 12 right. days of yeah, Christmas rendition. Yeah. 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 You guys um, gave full song on that one, the whole thing. We really yeah. did. We really did. We went in. Um, but, but, you know, so we got like little bits and pieces. Like we got to talk to Sam about like his family and like, you know, learn a little bit about kind of the day to day and stuff. Um, but, you know, it was nice that some of the places we stayed were like in an actual town center. And like there was a couple of days where, you know, I snuck out and went for a little run and you kind of get to experience it like outside of like the tour mm -hmm. bus, you know, and and you get a little bit more of a sense of like the whole culture and community and, you know, a greater appreciation for for that. And um you know, I think there were there were just so many moments like that and then coupled with all of the the wildlife and things. Um, but I think for me, like a really fun surprise was, um, you know, randomly finding all those dung beetles oh, yeah. um, because I was kind of joking on the first day when we met all the people in the group and we were talking about, you know, dung beetles and, oh, do you know that they roll these poop and they, yeah, you know, and it, poop I think that kind there of started the poop yeah. conversation really but I was like yeah and you know and they feed it to their baby and this that and the other and then like you know I'm by one of the bathroom buildings um you know after the boat ride and then all of a sudden I see these dung beetles rolling balls of dung and then they were everywhere um and that was really just like an unexpected fun surprise and I think again they're underappreciated and they're pretty incredible they fascinating so. amazing animals it's true Josh, what about you? Any big uh, sort of takeaway moments that you're going to be thinking, you're still thinking about? Oh, man. Um, you know, Kazinga Channel for me was was unreal. Um, I thought it was just, uh, I don't know, just the, the number of birds and and the proximity and, you, you know, I Some mean, biomass hundreds there. of, yeah, un and, and, and a lot of pretty good there diversity, both, I, I yeah. felt like. I mean, yeah, yeah. you get... Uh, you get the hundreds of pied kingfishers just right next to the boat. And, um, oh my God, the, the, the goals and turns. And the, I mean, we saw that one, um, lesser black bat, yes. right. That was, uh, that was tagged and, and you looked up the, yeah. the tag and got some back history That's on that wild. guy. And, yeah. Um, yeah, just an amazing place. Um, 
And I then the driving back from there through that that channel track where you got the kind of low. I mean, it was like late day and everything was kind of out and it was just eye level on on branches right next to the road. I mean, I, I was I was hoping Judith would stop for every single thing. It was just un, unbelievable. Yeah, she, it was, she, it was tried. Like, she tried. She tried. She really did. Uh, giant forest hog on that. Uh, yeah, right. 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 I mean, it was like a who's who gallery of uh, of of Uganda birds in that one area. It was amazing. And um, Miss Cindy Lodge, uh, Miss Cindy Hotel, that that uh, the the history with um, Hemingway, but but more special for me, Bogart and uh, and 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 Hepburn, because yeah. that's where they stayed for uh, for African. Fame. I gotta see that and movie. That was, that was, that was actually movie. on my list once I got home. Was to actually watch that movie. They had it. They had it on in it like playing. the yeah in the lobby where we turned in our keys, uh-huh. which I, I thought I was hilarious. Up. My dad was a big movie buff, and and so we were big movie buffs as, as kids. And, and so you've got, seen it. We kind of grew up with that stuff. So yeah, yeah, getting to see that uh, that place, and um, yeah, I was a big fan of that movie growing up. So yeah, it was really yeah, cool. Yeah, we just by chance ended up in in Bogart's room. That was pretty. That was pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Andrew and I drank in, and Phil drank in uh, Hemingway's Hemingway's bar that That's night. That's right. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. We did. Yeah, I think Kristen had to lay low that night because, uh, you know, she'd had a little too much waragi with you guys the day before. Um, uh, <laughs> that's a story for a different time. Yeah. I'll, I'll interview Kristen yeah. about her, her waragi <laughs> consumption. But uh, yeah, well, thanks, you guys. Oh, yeah. wait. Yeah, yeah. If we have time, I because this is unrelated, but but it is related to animals because we found some random red-tailed monkeys and that actually led to some folks finding a Vero's eagle owl oh. when we weren't around. But when I bailed out on one of the second bird excursions on the day and Kristen and I went down to the local Buindi community hospital, cause we wanted to get a tour and, and um, you know, kind of hear more about their, their community health initiatives. I think for me as a scientist, that was super cool because they were actually doing tangible things to improve outcomes of their community with almost no resources, like really simple fixes and educational initiatives. And they're reducing rates of childhood malnutrition and stunted growth and malaria outbreaks. And it was like, they just got a CPAP machine. They don't have a CT scanner. And they're, you know, doing these incredible things um, through community education and, and, you know, it was a it was a whole like afterthought that we we found out that we could go there after the gorilla hike. Um, you know, they they mentioned that one of the nurses came by and was talking about it, and it was just for me, it was just like a little cherry on top. You get the wildlife, you get the culture, you get the you know ecosystems, and then you get a little bit of um, you know seeing real science in action in a very underserved country, but it really saving lives. So. That was cool. that was really cool, and it meant a lot to to Kristen. Also, engaging with all the ladies at the Ride for a Woman yeah. guest house, um, which is a real highlight. Oh, that place was amazing. Yeah, they're doing amazing yeah. community yeah. work there as well, and I do think that's one of the great things about a trip to Uganda is you engage with people a lot. You engage with a lot of Ugandans more so than on some other trips, just because you go to more remote places a lot of the time on some other African trips, but also um, that you get to walk quite a bit, um, yes. which is, which is tough. You know, often a lot of places, there's just too many animals that can do you damage. Um, and in Uganda, you can actually get out on foot and, uh, and stretch your legs and feel like you get to know the land in a little bit of a different way. So 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, I do think we should scoot and um, – but thank you guys so much for doing this. Um, and, yeah, um, I think there's there's some good stuff here for, for our listeners. And so I appreciate you guys taking the time. And we will – in the sh- – in the in the show notes and also on our social media, we'll steer people towards um, towards your pod, Andrea, the the Unbiased Science Podcast, and to you know Josh, your work as well. And uh, excited to uh, was really an honor to be able to travel with you guys, and and we had a great group overall. Uh, so I hope they're listening to this and thinking back finally on that trip as well. But uh, yeah, thanks so much, and we'll look forward to seeing you around soon. Awesome. Thank you, George. Thanks, George. It's a lot of fun.